Two questions that I believe will shape the trajectory of your entire life. Question number one, who is this man? And question number two, what is this gospel? Welcome to the Plainfield Christian Church Podcast. We hope that the message today encourages you. For additional resources to inspire you in your journey with Christ, go to plainfieldchristian.com. Enjoy today's podcast. Morning, church. If we haven't had the chance to meet yet, my name is Luke. I get to serve as one of the ministers here at PCC. Happy New Year. We're here. You did it, you guys. You guys remember when you were like 14 years old and it was really cool when you got to stay up till midnight and watch the ball drop? And now you're like, if you're like me, like, I just kind of want to go to bed, you know? Like, the house is in a post-Christmas wasteland. Like, there's decorations half taken down. There's still wrapping paper laying all over the place. We had like 14 family Christmases to go to this last week. I don't know about you. Or nine and a half hours in. I've already fallen off the wagon on the new diet, right? Like, I just kind of want to go to bed and ring in the new year that way. And yet, once you can get past all of that, I do actually love the whole kind of new year experience. It feels like a fresh slate. It feels like a time for new beginnings, doesn't it? Just a little bit like you can go back to the garage and kind of dust off that old weight set and then like feel like you're going to get back into it, you know, start a new book. Like whether or not you are a New Year's resolution person, I think we could all agree that by the end of this year, we want to be better, don't we? Like whether or not you're engaged in the Holy New Year's resolution kind of thing, we want to be better. We want a new beginning of sorts. And, and kind of in that same spirit, we're kicking off a new sermon series today that we're gonna be in for most of this year where we're gonna be walking through the life of Jesus as recorded by a guy named Mark. So without further ado, would you open your Bibles with me this morning to Mark chapter one, verse one. Mark chapter one, verse one. Um, there was a study done a few years ago, uh, about 100,000 people were involved in this study over an eight-year period. And this study showed that of those people, the people who put one particular habit in place in their lives had significantly healthier lives than the people who didn't have that habit. The people with that one habit in their lives actually had 62% less drunkenness, 59% less pornography use and sexual dysfunction, 45% less gambling than those who didn't have that habit. That one habit was shown to improve people's self-esteem, give them better family relationships, stronger social connections. The people with that one habit were able to reduce their bitterness over that eight-year period by 40%, their destructive thoughts by 32%, their isolation also by 32%. They reduced their inability to forgive by 31% and their loneliness by 30% compared with those who did not engage in that one particular habit. If I told you this morning that you could do all of that to your life with just one habit, it'd be a no-brainer, wouldn't it? Of course. So it begs the question, right? What is the habit? The people who dramatically increased the health of their lives in that way over that eight-year period were the people who at least four times a week spent time in God's word. Crazy, isn't it? And let's say, hypothetically today, you decided that was a habit that you wanna put in place. I definitely recommend that you do. Let's say, okay, yeah, I wanna, I wanna spend some time in, in God's word and in prayer every day this year. And, and for people who are just kicking off reading the Bible, they've never done it before, I always recommend that they start in the gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those are the stories of Jesus's life here. So let's say that you know nothing about the Bible or Christianity, but you're deciding you're gonna give this thing a whirl. You crack open your Bible, you notice it's split up into two sections. You've got the Old Testament, which is actually most of the Bible. That's everything that happened before the birth of Jesus. Then you've got the New Testament, which is everything 
everything that happened after the birth of Jesus. You head to the New Testament, you're gonna go to the Gospels, you crank open the first page and you notice a title that says the Gospel according to Matthew. And you say, okay, let's do this. And you start to read and you're a little bit confused. Like it's, you start to read the gospel according to Matthew and it's this long list of names that are really hard to pronounce. It's some sort of genealogy for this guy who's the main character named Jesus, but you manage to slug through the names and then you get to some parts you recognize. You meet this guy named Joseph, who's a carpenter. You meet some wise men who you see riding around on camels and nativity scenes this time of year. You keep reading through this book and eventually Jesus dies, but he raises from the dead. It's a great story. So you decide you're gonna read one of these other gospel stories and you flip over to another one that you've heard about. The title says the gospel according to Luke and you start to read it and it's, it's kind of similar, you know, starts with the birth of Jesus, but it's a little bit different. This time you, you meet Mary and you see the angels and you see some shepherds and, and other, other things that you see at Christmas time still left out in people's yards, you know, first week of January and, and you keep reading. It's a good story, some common elements, but a little bit of a different angle. But at the end, Jesus dies and he raises back to life. Good story, you flip the page, the gospel according to John. Like, okay, well, all right. And, and you read it, and again, it, it starts with the story of Jesus' origin, but, but this time he doesn't talk about the birth of Jesus. He kind of tells the story of Jesus from a cosmic perspective. John talks about how even before the beginning of time, Jesus was with God, Jesus was God. And, and you keep reading, but again, it ends with Jesus dying, raising back to life. And if you know nothing, you're like, man, did Jesus die like three times? Like, that's, that's rough, you know? And how many authorized biographies of this guy are there? Is it gonna be the gospel according to Frank, the gospel according to Susan? Is the whole thing just full of these? And then you remember you forgot one. And so you turn back a few pages to where the title says, The Gospel According to Mark. And you start to read, and you notice that Mark doesn't even talk about the birth of Jesus. This one's different. There's no Mary, no Joseph, no shepherds, angels, wise men, no star, no prologue. He just begins with one sentence. Mark chapter one, verse one. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. And that's our text for today. Just one verse. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, um, our conviction as a church, it, like Brad said, is that every time we come to this moment together every week, like we do, we are gonna hear from God himself. That it's not just gonna be Luke speaking to you. It's actually gonna be God speaking to you through his word, through his spirit, through his people, and we're always gonna preach from the word of God. And as we do, as you're here, there's gonna be times where we cover a whole lot of scripture at once to give you a, a picture of the breadth of God's word. And there's gonna be other times today where we kind of slow down and we zoom in a little bit to show you the depth of God's word. And so our goal for today is just to come at this one verse with fresh eyes and to let that be a launch pad for the 32 weeks that we're gonna spend together this year walking through this gospel according to Mark. Because how you start a story really matters. If you were gonna come listen to me tell a story and I started off by saying, are you tired of overpaying for car insurance? Or if I started off by saying, four score and seven years ago. Or if I said, once upon a time. You would expect three very different things. When you, how you start a story really matters. So how does Mark start this story? Mark chapter one, verse one, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the son of God. 
So based on that beginning, what should we expect from this story? We're gonna ask two questions of this verse today, two questions that we're gonna ask throughout this series, two questions that will certainly shape our story for today, but even more importantly, two questions that I believe will shape the trajectory of your entire life. Question number one, who is this man? And question number two, what is this gospel? Let's start with question number one. Who is this man? That question, more than any other question, is the question that Mark wants you to ask as we soak in these stories from the life of Jesus. Who is this man? Was Jesus short or tall? Was he funny or serious? Was he sarcastic or sweet? Was he more likely to laugh or cry or both? Would he vote red? Would he vote blue? Would he vote at all? Would he maybe even run for public office? What would, what would Jesus think about the things that we think about? What would Jesus spend his money on? Would Jesus drive a truck? Would he ride a bike? Would he walk? Would he, gasp, drive electric? I don't know. Would he have a phone? If so, what apps would he use? Who did Jesus claim to be? Was he, is he a man? Was he God? Is he both? If so, how in the world does that work? Who is this man? That's the question we're gonna ask together week in and week out. And question number two, what is this gospel? That's a big fancy church word. You'll notice this book that we're walking through together. It's not called Mark, as if the story was about him. It's not even called the gospel of Mark. He's not the source or the subject. This book is wisely titled, The Gospel According to Mark. We have four of these, the gospel according to Matthew, the gospel according to Mark, the gospel according to Luke, and the gospel according to John. It's the same story, the same gospel, just told from four slightly different perspectives. So what is this gospel? What in the world does that word even mean? The Greek word for gospel, buckle into your grammar seats, okay? Like the Greek word for gospel is the word euangelion. Can you say that? Say euangelion. There you go. You're starting off good this year. You're getting your money's worth, all right? And euangelion just means good news. It means good news. We just read it, Mark chapter one, verse one, the beginning of the euangelion, the good news. I like the way the ESV says it. It says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. And that word euangelion, the good news there, was often used like in a pagan sense. It was a normal word that people would use and they used it most often to describe like a military or political victory that happened. Hey, this is good news. So-and-so won the election or so-and-so won the battle. The euangelion. But we all know there's a lot more to a word than just the definition of the word, right? There's also like the the feelings that come along with the word. For example, uh, if I said 7-Eleven, 7-Eleven, there's a certain picture that comes in your mind, right? There's a feeling that comes in your mind, 7-Eleven. If I said 9-Eleven, there's a very different picture that comes in your mind, isn't there? Very different feeling. So about this gospel, about this Jesus, we don't just wanna ask what does Mark want us to know? We wanna ask, what does he want us to feel when we come along with these words? And to answer that, I'm gonna ask you today to put on three different sets of glasses as we look at Mark chapter one, verse one together. Three different sets of glasses that we're gonna read through. Here's the first one. I want you to read as a Roman. Read as a Roman. Try to read through the eyes of a Roman citizen. Let's look at it another time. Mark chapter one, verse one. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah the son of God. Now, to our 21st century American eyes, that seems like a pretty simple statement, but if you're a Roman citizen hearing that text, that verse 
is a hand grenade with the pin pulled out. Here's what I mean by that. Let me introduce you to Caesar Augustus. This is Caesar Augustus up here. I hope he looked better than that in real life. Caesar Augustus was the greatest of all the emperors. No debate. Every person in the Roman Empire knew who the greatest emperor of history was. It was Caesar Augustus. In fact, Caesar Augustus was so great that I want us to take a look at an ancient inscription that talked about the birth of Caesar Augustus. This is really a pretty incredible discovery. That little piece of stone with all the stuff chiseled into it, that's called the Priene inscription. It's talking about the birth of Caesar Augustus, and it says this. It says, since providence, like capital P, one of their gods, since providence, which has ordered all things and is deeply interested in our life, has set in most perfect order by giving us Augustus, whom she filled with virtue, that she might benefit humankind, sending him as a savior, both for us and for our descendants, that he might end war and arrange all things. And since he, Caesar, by his appearance, excelled even our anticipations, surpassing all previous benefactors and not even leaving to posterity any hope of surpassing what he has done, catch this, and since the birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning of the good news for the world that came by reason of him. Did you catch that? The Romans are saying that through the god And Savior, Caesar Augustus, a new age has dawned that his birth was the beginning of the good news for the world. In fact, on that same ancient document, the author even suggests that they should reset the calendar so that year one corresponds to the year of Caesar Augustus's birth. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Remarkable, isn't it? In fact, Caesar Augustus was so incredible that after his death, Rome gave him the official title, son of a god. Eventually, all the emperors after him ended up following suit. Subsequent emperors like the emperor Nero, who was in charge at the time the gospel according to Mark was written, they all demanded to be worshiped as a son of the gods. Rome said, hey, listen, You can worship whatever God you want to. You can go to whatever temple you want to, pray to whatever God you want to, as long as you also worship the emperor. This was kind of the bedrock practice that held the whole empire together. This was the glue. This was how they maintained their unity in all these provinces. So to to, to deny that the emperor was the son of God was rebellion against the empire. It's not just a religious thing. This is political rebellion. So I should pause here and I should mention, do you know where Mark is when he's writing this gospel according to Mark? He's in Rome. Mark is in Rome here in the 60s AD. Can I tell you what's going on in Rome in the 60s AD? Mark steps onto the scene here in Rome and the emperor Nero has just basically lost his mind. A huge portion of the city of Rome has been burned in a fire. Nero blames the Christians for the fire even though they didn't start it. Nero uses that as an excuse to start killing off the Christians in Rome. Meanwhile, around the edges of the empire, there's a bunch of earthquakes that are happening that are wreaking havoc. Meanwhile, also the Roman army has just been sent to Jerusalem to squash a Jewish rebellion and they will end up burning the Jewish temple to the ground. Shortly after that, Nero himself will end up committing suicide, and the year after he does, in a series of uprisings, four emperors will hold the throne in Rome in just one year, each of them jockeying for position, trying to figure out who's actually in charge, each wanting of those four emperors, each wanting to claim that they are the one who will bring the new beginning. They are the one who's bringing the good news. They are the one who's the true son of the gods. 
And so Mark steps on the scene here in Rome and he drops a bomb on the political playground of the most powerful empire that the world has ever known. In one sentence about a crucified peasant carpenter, Mark says, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the son of God. There's a new sheriff in town. This is audacious. Perhaps the most... um, influential New Testament scholar of our day is a guy by the name of N.T. Wright. And he tells a story about one time he was preaching a Christmas service at a church on Christmas day. He's standing up in the pulpit when he sees walk into the sanctuary, a really famous British atheist. N.T. Wright is a British guy there in England. And this atheist walks in with his buddy and sits down there in the church. And N.T. Wright says the atheist basically just kind of looked up and stared at him like, this better be good, buddy. And, and if you've ever brought a friend to church, you kind of know that feeling. You can imagine what the guy with the atheist is feeling like, dude, I spent all my social capital to get this guy here. Like, this better be good. Pull out all the stops. We got one shot, right? And so, so N.T. Wright, he, he preaches the Christmas service. And after the service is over, this atheist guy comes up to N.T. Wright and he says, I get it. I figured it out. I know why people like Christmas so much, even though it's totally untrue and a complete waste of time. He said, everybody likes Christmas, because a baby threatens no one. It's just all happy, it makes everybody feel good. It doesn't actually mean anything. A baby doesn't threaten anybody. And N.T. Wright says, I was dumbfounded. And he was dumbfounded because nothing could be further from the truth. As we read through the gospels, we're gonna see that everywhere Jesus went, his whole life, he was seen as a threat. That that baby has toppled kingdoms, uprooted empires, train-wrecked economies, used a hand-braided whip to purge a corrupt religious system. This baby has gotten millions of people killed and given billions more deliverance into a life beyond their wildest imaginations. This baby, his teachings have eroded slavery and sexism and racism and genocide and infanticide. This baby is the one who, if the emperor would have known, is the true king of kings and lord of the world. This baby, within just a generation of his birth, his followers would spread like wildfire across the empire and they would shake the values of the kingdom to its core. That baby would be the one who would raise the status of the poor, proclaim the way to eternal life, upend all that is evil, promote all that is wise and claim to be the source of all that is good. This baby would raise the status of the poor, proclaim the way to eternal life, that he would confront the proud, expose the self-righteous, shuffle the deck of the cultural status structures, subvert the power games of the elite and then he would suffer the predictable execution of people who do such things and yet in three days they would find his tomb to be empty this baby was such a threat that when he was born the local king killed all the baby boys in the village just to try to get rid of him in fact mark is going to end his gospel account with a portrayal of a roman centurion of all people don't miss the symbolism a roman centurion standing at the cross as Jesus dies, taking that title that was meant only for Caesar and giving it to a crucified carpenter, saying, surely this man is the son of God. Wow. So who is this man? And what is this gospel? If we have Roman eyes to read this, we'll see that Jesus' followers in the early days, they weren't thrown to the lions because they said that Jesus was just a good teacher. 
or that he was just a God or a savior. They were thrown to the lions because they said Jesus is Lord, which means that Caesar is not. They were slaughtered because they said that there is one eternal kingdom and it is not Rome and it is not America. The beginning of the good news of Jesus the Messiah, the son of God, means that Jesus is the one true king. All right, take off your Roman glasses here for a second. Put on another set of glasses. I want you to read this as a Jew. Read this as a Jew. Let's take it one more time. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the son of God. Let's take it piece by piece here. Mark says, the beginning. Now a Jew reading that would have thought back to Genesis chapter one, verse one, the first verse in the Bible that says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Mark is saying here, that the coming of Jesus is no less momentous than the creation of the universe itself. He says, the beginning of the good news. Now to the Jewish mind, they would have known what the good news is. They would have remembered back to the prophet Isaiah who talked about the good news in Isaiah chapter 52. Isaiah says, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, what is the good news, Isaiah says? The good news is your God reigns. To the Jews, the good news was that the God of Israel is in charge of the world, even when it doesn't look like it, even when they're oppressed by Rome. To the Jews, the good news is that a time will come when Yahweh will restore Israel, rebuild the temple, regather the 12 tribes, resurrect the faithful Israelites, and together with them, rule the world. To the Jews, when they hear Jesus going around preaching, saying, good news, the kingdom of heaven has come near, the Jews who heard him were thinking, yes, finally, all the promises to Abraham and Moses and David and the prophets are finally coming true. Everyone's now gonna see that Yahweh is king and our God reigns. Mark says the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah. The Messiah was the one that God had promised would come to restore his kingship on the earth. The Hebrew word is Messiah. The Greek word for it is Christ. It's like Brad said a few weeks ago, when we say Jesus Christ, it's not his last name, it's his title. When you're baptized and you stand in the water and you say, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. You're saying, yes, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the promised king who's gonna restore the reign of God on the earth. Mark says the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the son of God. I don't know about you, but Christmas seems to move pretty fast, doesn't it? It moves so fast and we tell the same old stories over and over again that sometimes I can fail to be shocked by the reality that God became human. Paul says in Colossians chapter two, in Christ all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. Philippians chapter two, he says, Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. John chapter one, we referenced earlier, says that in the beginning was the word, that's Jesus, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Father, who, son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So 
with Jewish eyes, who's this man, what is this gospel? As with the Romans to the Jews, the answer is shocking. The answer is that God has kept his promises, the Messiah is here, and God himself has stepped into the story. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, is that our God reigns, and that in him and his people, Israel's hope is fulfilled, creation's purpose is restored, and earthly powers are being upended. Jesus is the one true king. And the rest of the gospel, according to Mark, is gonna unpack that ridiculously bold claim. Now, take off your Jewish glasses. Last set I want you to put on. Put on your glasses or contacts or whatever you wear, right? Like, read it as you. Here's what I want you to do. Read this as you. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. I don't know where exactly you stand today. I don't know what your story is, your personality type, your experiences, your fears, your hopes, your dreams, your faith journey. I don't know what all that is, what your perspective might be this morning. But every person and every worldview has to answer four basic questions. The questions of origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. Origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. Every worldview has to address those four questions. For example, let's take an atheist worldview, somebody who believes there is no God. How would they answer the questions of origin, meaning, morality, and destiny? The question of origin, well, they'd say, well, we don't really know where we come from. The question of meaning, they'd say, well, there is none, so I guess just try to make the world a better place while you're here if you feel like it. The question of morality, well, who's to say what's right and wrong, really? So I guess just do what's best for the group or do whatever you want. What about the question of destiny? They say, well, that when you die, the lights just go off, so game over, thanks for playing. Now, I don't know very many people who are a true atheist, but everybody's living by some kind of a story that has to address those four questions. There's different stories you can live by. You can live by the story of power, It says gain as much influence as you can. You can live by the story of religion that says you gotta do enough good stuff to try to earn your way to heaven or God or nirvana or the afterlife or whatever. You can live by the story of wealth that says whoever dies with the most toys wins. You can live by the story of uh, pleasure that says who knows why we're here but let's have a good time while we are. But the gospel story has different answers. For you in your everyday life, Mark chapter one, verse one has profound implications. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the son of God, answers for you every one of those four questions. Origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. Let's take a look. It answers the question of origin. It says that you are not a cosmic accident. That there's a God who made you intentionally and that he wanted you to be a part of his kingdom. It answers the question of meaning. It says that our lives are now grounded in the story of what Jesus has done and what he's doing through us in the world. That's what gives your life meaning. It answers the question of morality in terms of how we think about right and wrong. It means that whatever the king says is good, we say is good. Whatever the king says is evil, we say is evil. Whether or not it aligns with the impulses of the people around us or the feelings within us, we're gonna trust the king who created us. It also answers the question of destiny, that because our ultimate future is secure in him, it enables us to live with boldness and peace here in the present. So let's come back to these two questions. Who is this man and what is this gospel? If it's true that Jesus is our one true king, 
then our origin, our meaning, our morality, and our destiny all flow out of that. And then the invitation for you today is to simply join in on what God is doing in the world because this is only the beginning of the good news. Flowing from that gospel, from that good news, the church was born and their allegiance to Jesus, these early Jesus followers, they shook the foundations of the Roman Empire. These early people who followed King Jesus, they were caring for the sick when everybody else abandoned them. They were rescuing babies that everybody else left to die. They were establishing the world's very first orphanages, the world's first hospitals, the world's first universities. These people who followed Jesus were caring for the poor and loving their enemies, even when they themselves were being hunted and killed because they were so confident in their origin, meaning, morality, and destiny that flowed from King Jesus. There's a historian named Will Durant who says this about the early Jesus followers. He says, there's no greater drama in human record than the sight of a few Christians scorned and oppressed by a succession of emperors bearing all trials with a fierce tenacity, multiplying quietly, building order while their enemies generated chaos, fighting the sword with the word, brutality with hope, and at last defeating the strongest state that history has known. Caesar and Christ had met in the arena and Christ had won. And that kind of opposition isn't just something that happened way back then, it's still happening today. The world is opposing the reign of King Jesus. Persecution is going on now as it always has. Just in the last year, in 2022, over 360 million Christians are living in places where they experience high levels of persecution and discrimination, only that we have on record 5,110 churches and other Christian buildings were attacked, 4,765 Christians were detained without trial, arrested, sentenced, or imprisoned, and 5,898 Christians were killed for their faith. This is going on right now, and yet King Jesus and his people don't stop. Just three weeks ago, um, I got to go to England for a grad school class. It was an amazing experience. And one of our lecturers in that class um, was a petite little British woman. To be quite honest, she was very unimpressive looking. She wore a simple blue dress and some worn out muck boots. But she is on the Taliban's most wanted list for planting churches in Afghanistan. She couldn't even tell us her name. It was so dangerous for her to be with us. But she shared with us these stories. And this is a woman that she just exudes this quiet, calm, confident passion that she is so assured of her origin, meaning, morality, and destiny that she can't wait to partner with what King Jesus is doing in the world. And so she's spending her life planting churches in terrorist-run towns. And when you ask her why, and we did, this was her answer. She said, when I came to faith, The love of Jesus wrecked me. She said it again. She said, when I came to faith, the love of Jesus wrecked me. And so when the Taliban swept through Afghanistan and they came to the town that she was in and they said that anybody who would be found with Christian paraphernalia or materials or a Bible app on their phone, that they'd just be taken out into the street and hung, no questions asked. This was her response. And I quote, She said, so we decided to ramp up our evangelism. (laughs) In for a penny, in for a pound, she said. When death is facing you, you might as well go out singing. And she's kind of a typical, like, straight-faced Brit, you know, stiff upper lip, the whole nine yards. And when everybody else was telling them to lay low, she reminded them of the gospel. 
I can't do her accent, but she said, uh, she said, we actually believe that this world will pass away and that we'll have eternity with Jesus. So if I live, good. And if I die, great. Being killed isn't problematic because you know I get to go be with God. <laughs> and so she's following King Jesus and they have this vision to see a house church on every street in the city and it's happening right under the noses of the Taliban. And if I could wish one thing for us as a church, maybe even for the American church as a whole this year, it's so easy to get our heads down and to be discouraged with what's going on in our own lives, in our families, in American Christianity. But I wish, I wish, I want the American church, I want all of us to wake up and look around because King Jesus and his gospel and his church are advancing with breathtaking speed all around the world. And we get to be a part of it. Historically speaking, um, Wherever a religion starts, typically that remains the center of that religion. So if you think about Islam, the center of Islam is still like Arabia, Mecca, that whole area. If you think about like Eastern mysticism, mostly stays East. Hinduism still has India. Buddhism has Thailand. Judaism still is largely based in Jerusalem, Israel, that whole area. But Christianity is fundamentally different. That because Jesus is the king over everything and his gospel truth gives origin, meaning, morality, and destiny that applies to every culture on the planet. Throughout history, the center of Christianity is actually constantly shifting. The center of Christianity started out in Jerusalem, then it kind of spread to the Mediterranean world. Then it moved southwest to Alexandria and North Africa. After a while, it moved north into Rome, then northwest into Europe. Then it moved across the Atlantic Ocean to North America. But actually, in the last century, in the 20th century, Christianity really began to flourish in South America and in Latin America and in Africa. And in just 10 or 15 years, it's fully expected that 40% of the world's Christians will actually live in Africa. And in the last decade, we turned a major corner in church history, and now more than half of the Christians in the world live in the Southern Hemisphere. We aren't the center anymore. Today, there are 80 million genuine Jesus followers in Russia. There's over 100 million Christians in communist China. At the pace that the church is growing right now, by 2030, there will be more Christians in China than there are in America, and China could actually be a Christian-majority country by the year 2050. Isn't that crazy? The Middle East right now is home to the most persecuted churches on the planet. Just a little over 40 years ago, in 1979, there were less than 500 known Christians from a Muslim background in the nation of Iran. But today, there are hundreds of of thousands and they're the fastest growing Christian movement on the planet. Right now, for the first time in human history, we're gonna be able to have a Bible translation started in every single language on the planet by the year 2035. That's just over a decade away. That's never happened in world history before. This is an amazing time to be alive. All hail the King. The beginning of the good news of Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. And it's only the beginning of what he wants to do this year. So I guess my invitation to you is just, wherever you are and whatever your story is this year, would you just bow down again to the king? And would you just say, yeah, I'm all in. Wherever you're going, I'm going too. And would you come on the journey with us? The beginning of the good news of Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Take out your communion elements, if you would, when you got them. As the people of the king, uh, we do this every week to remind ourselves of what he has done. 
The Bible says communion is a lot of different things. It's a time for um, anticipation. It's a time for celebration. It's a time for remembrance and reflection. It's also a time for examination and for confession. And so, man, like Rebecca and I even last night had a conversation and I just, I mean, I have some stuff that I wanna just leave behind last year. Anybody else wanna just leave behind some stuff and be different this year? And so, would you just take a moment and you can receive the bread on your own. I'm gonna give you a minute to just have some time with you and Jesus. And would you just draw your mind and your heart back to those things of last year that you wanna leave behind, the ways you wanna be different, the regrets and the sins and the failures that you need to lay before the cross and to say, Jesus, I need your grace and I need your help here. And then out of that, I'll pray and we'll receive the juice together. Jesus, right now, you're sitting on your throne, reigning as king over everything, king of kings and lord of lords. And you are growing your kingdom here, and we're just thankful to get to be a part of it. And we wanna say again that we believe that you are the Christ, you are the son of the living God. We need you as our Lord and as our savior. And so, what we're offering to you, all those things that we wanna leave behind, and we are asking you to keep beginning a good news story in us. We are thankful that we get to receive this juice that reminds us of your blood that washes us clean. That, Lord, is our forgiveness and our peace for the past and our hope and confidence for the future. We love you. It's in Jesus' name that all God's people said, amen. This is the blood of Christ. 